Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, our, our master, our friend, and now because of your redemption, our brother. You have done for us what no other being in all of creation could do. For love of us, you've suffered the consequence of our sin to set right the relationship between us and your heavenly Holy Father, our God. You've done so for love of us, for each one of us you died. And the Father has honored your love for us by fulfilling everything that creation intended through you as the new Adam. We are born again. Just as, just as Eve, the bride of Adam, was taken from the side of Adam, the man, in order to be his companion, so you have taken from your side droplets of blood and serum and made us your body, your bride, Lord Jesus Christ. You have taken us and made a new creation that is culminating every day and fulfilling itself every day. And we give you praise and glory and thanksgiving, Lord, for this. Who are we to rejoice and accept this offering when we have done so much to disrespect you and disregard you? And yet while we were sinners, you died for us. The apostle says that if you had not died and risen again, then what's the point? But you have risen again. And as we visit this truth in our scripture study and our time of discussion, I pray, Lord, that there is anointing with the Holy Spirit so that all might leave filled anew with faith and praise and glory for you and changed lives. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. You have heard some scripture readings, and among them was the one that Courtney read from the Gospel of John. I'd like you to keep that in your mind for a moment as we talk. But before I begin, let me just acknowledge the fact that I am absolutely ecstatic to see all of you here today. What a blessing. And it's a blessing to have you online as well. To think that a year ago we celebrated Easter from our homes. I led you in worship from my basement in a room that frankly I still don't like to go into anymore because, well, I got tired of it. It was dreary and dark and lonely and this is without a doubt a profound example of the exact opposite of that. So let's give God a hand. Can we do that? Just. I've noticed that we, Frozen Chosen, have a little bit of trouble raising our hands and praising God when the song says hallelujah and all that. That's okay, but we can clap, right? So good job, good job. You, you, you may have thought out just a little bit today. <laughs> Remember, I'm your shepherd, so I'm chief of the Frozen. 
It's okay. You know, the, the beautiful thing, and I don't want to digress from my topic or waste your time, but I have to say that the most remarkable thing that's happened in the era of the church is the diversity that God has in his mercy said, you know, as long as you get the facts right, then your traditions and your habits and your tastes can be varied. And so we have gathered as a family of faith that is comfortable with modest expressions of praise, but please, please, please do not forget to give him some glory today. However you choose to do it, thank him and praise him to, to, to give praise and thanks to the one who saw you through this unbelievable year. Give thanks and praise to the one who in fact did die and rise again and in so doing assured your eternal life. And that's what we're going to talk about. So you remember from Courtney's reading of the Gospel of John in chapter 20 that at the end of the passage, he says, these things have been written so that you may believe. That's an important thing to keep in mind. As I said, we really love scripture around here at Shiloh and, and we have a habit of really digesting it and, and reading it and parsing it and understanding what it's saying. It doesn't mean everybody has to be a Bible scholar, but what we've learned through our study is, is context is everything. And so to really grasp the context of what John was saying, remember the last thing he said first. Remember that he said, this is written so that you may believe. What is written so that you may believe? Well, for one thing, when Mary of Magdala showed up in the garden that morning and saw that the stone was gone and that the body was no longer present, she assumed grave robbers had come in the night and taken the body away. But John assures us that this place was under guard, Roman guard, no less. Bethany said that there wasn't any love lost between the Romans and the Hebrew people, and that's an understatement, believe me. The fact is the Romans, and in fact, the ones placed at this guarding post had their lives at stake. They couldn't risk anything going wrong in this particular job they were given. So they were not only like dead men because of the presence of an angel and the experience of light and glory from heaven, they were like dead men because they knew what was going to happen to them because of their failure to keep anyone out of the tomb. And so it seems very unlikely that grave robbers got past Roman guards who had so much at stake in order to steal a body. And John points out to us, you wonder why he says that the, that the head cloth was neatly folded and that the body linens were laid to one side. And, and, you know, why does he say that? Well, remember the last thing he said first. These things are written so that you may believe. It seems very unlikely that grave robbers would take the time to undress the body and neatly roll the head cloth and the body linen aside and then carefully remove. It seems altogether unlikely that they would do that, especially with Roman guards who had so much at stake watching everything. 
Remember, too, that the tomb was sealed, and the way that it was sealed was that the stone was rolled across the entrance, and then an iron spike driven into the stone so that the stone couldn't be rolled away. And yet, even today, there's evidence that this is a stone spike that's not, uh, that has been sheared at the point where it was driven in to the stone. And, and so here we have assurance that robbing that grave would have been highly unlikely. More likely is that this earthquake, this earth-shattering force of divine energy that comes from beyond our space and time into a tiny room, a cave really, uh, a, a root cellar you could say, that has in it the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and this force of nature and unnature just powerfully obliterates the stone and blows it out, shaking the earth in the process and Needless to say, these people were terrified. And then as you heard, later in the same chapter, Thomas says, well, you know, I'm not going to believe it unless I actually probe the hands or wrists with my fingers and put my hand in his side. That's a pretty bold statement. You know, some of us are like that too. You know, it's not that we don't want to believe. Thomas did want to believe, but he was so bitter and so disappointed that God didn't plan things according to Thomas's understanding, according to Thomas's wishes. Could we all stop for a minute and honestly admit that we've been frustrated with God, angry with God at times because we prayed about what we wanted and how we thought God could best accomplish that. And then when it didn't go that way, we were mad at God about it. You suppose maybe Thomas was just mad, not so much unbelieving, but just mad. Oh, yeah, sure, he's alive. Like, that's going to happen. Everybody knows what he was supposed to do. He didn't do it. In fact, they killed him. And so Thomas is frustrated. But here, clearly, what happens as soon as he sees the Lord, falls on his face and says, my Lord and my God. Listen to what he said. My Lord and my God. Remember, John told us at the end what we should remember at the beginning, that these things were written so that you could believe. Thomas sees Jesus in the presence of the apostles. Jesus is eating. He's eating. Ghosts are probably not going to do that. People who are somehow not altogether there would not do that. Jesus did invite him to touch the wounds to recognize that they were there and that they were real. And if you've ever experienced a pretty traumatic injury or a wound, then you know that even after it's begun to heal, there is a easily, you know, uh, tactile experience there. You can, you can put your hand in that wound. You can feel the, the, the place that was damaged. And now, Back to Mary for a minute. Remember that John said that we should hear these things in order that we can believe. Listen to what Jesus said to Mary when she saw him. He said, Mary, go tell them. Go tell them that their father my father and their father, 
welcomes them. Go tell them that I have plans to ascend to their God and my God. In other words, he's, he's telling Mary, I, I, I don't know, I didn't say that the way I wanted to say it, so let me do that again. Better. Because Mary did something that I failed to mention that's really important. He grabs, she grabs a hold of him and is holding tight. Now, I don't know about you, but there's places in Scripture that I read things and I go, what the heck is going on there? How do I make any sense out of that? And, and this is one of those places like, why did Mary grab a hold of him and then have Jesus say to her, no, 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 don't hold on. I haven't ascended yet, right? I, I mean, sometimes the simplest answer is the best. I, I tried to find some metaphysical reason in my mind, you know, for why that was. But here's what actually happened. And it's really pretty simple. In effect, Jesus was saying, Mary, don't hold on to me. I'm not going anywhere. You don't need to hold me down. You're, you're, what you see is real. I, this, isn't, this isn't your imagination. You know, like, like you, ever, you ever had a dream that you're going, you know, I don't want to wake up. This is too good to be true. I don't want this to end. And, and you know, you wake up. And, and so Mary is just like, she's holding on to it because she's afraid he's going to disappear. And, and, and he says, Mary, it's all right. I'm not going anywhere. I, I will ascend eventually, but I'm, I'm here for now. Relax. In fact, relax and go tell the brothers, the family, that I will be ascending to my father and theirs. That I will be returning to my God and their God. And that's the point that I really want you to take away from this. Do, do you notice that Jesus has changed the terms of the relationship? What has changed in the three days from the, from the uh, death to the resurrection is that Jesus is now declaring that they are one with the Father in the same way that he is. That they are experiencing now the same relationship with God that he experiences. This is a declaration that like him, they are welcome in God's house. Sin had prevented that, but sin has no more power. And then Jesus said, when he stood among them, peace be with you. Now, when he says, peace be with you, don't miss the importance of that statement. It's a proof of another sort. It's a proof that no matter what they thought Jesus had really come to do, no matter what they thought God's plan was, the fact is, is they were wrong and they're forgiven for being wrong and God is at peace with them. Nevertheless, aren't you glad that you probably are wrong about a lot of things when it comes to the Lord Jesus and you're okay anyway? Aren't you glad to know that you're forgiven anyway? There is a condition. You got to believe these things. After all, John said these things are written so that you will believe. So believe them. And then understand that the way you worship or the, the, the extent to which you have, have uh, become a Bible scholar or any of those things, it, none of that is as important as just believing that one thing Jesus said, peace be with you. We're at peace. We are at peace. There was among them a man who had denied Jesus three times. Jesus said, peace be with you. There was among them a man who said, I ain't going to believe he's alive until I could touch his flesh. 
And Jesus said, peace be with you. There are among us those who say, you know, I think this is a wonderful myth. I think that religion is bad. I think Christians have done a really great job of pushing me away from the church. And you know what? Jesus says, peace be with you. Not my peace, he says. Not as, not, my peace I give you is not as the world gives you. I give you the peace that comes from the Heavenly Father. In other words, no matter how messed up things appear, through Jesus, all things are returning to the way they were designed to be. And in time, we'll bear witness to that. Jesus then, you know, commissions the people, eventually saying to them, now I want you to go and proclaim the same peace. You know, the person who says Christians haven't done a whole lot to make me want to go to church is probably justified in some way or another for saying such things. But what I know is, is that when Christians come with their hands open in the way that Jesus came with his open, when they come saying peace, be with you. Not my peace, not the world's peace, but the peace of Christ be with you. When we come that way, people find a Christianity they can live with. When we come with grace, forgiveness, mercy, love, when we affirm all that God is and all of God's perfect expectations, but also the perfect grace of God, while we strive to fulfill those expectations, then we're not pushing people away. We're bringing them in. And praise God, on Pentecost, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the critical element because when we try to work all this out in our minds and do it entirely within our intellect and our feelings and within our our uh, uh, comprehension of things and, and, and our worldly systems. In other words, when religion is more important than the power of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned to you earlier that here at Shiloh, we believe in praising God and singing God's praise. We believe in praying and reading scripture. You know what else we believe? We believe that the Holy Spirit is the source of all the light and energy that comes from us in the light and energy of Christ. In other words, when we become believers, we have accepted like Thomas, my Lord and my God, and then and our own kind of Pentecost, we're born again in the Holy Spirit. And so we may be somewhat frozen chosen in the sense that we aren't really, you know, up and down and jumping over the pews and all that stuff. But you know what we are, we're still spirit filled believers. Because being born again means being born again filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit working in you is where your human logic can take a back seat. It plays an important role. That's why we believe in holiness of heart and mind. But it is a spirit-driven intellect. And so we welcome thinkers. We welcome those who wish to process these things reasonably and logically. After all, John said at the end what we need to remember at the beginning, which is these things are written so that you may believe. But when the faith is, when, when the faith is informed, you have a combination that is unstoppable. And when it's a living faith, that is the thing that will bring the unbeliever into a, a, a spirit of openness and reception. 
And so Jesus sends us not to proclaim a message with a particular contract to sign in order to receive all the benefits. We're not selling timeshares or anything. What we are saying to people is that we've been saved by grace we didn't deserve. We've been filled with a spirit we didn't have the capacity to contain. And we are now Christ's brothers and sisters, and therefore his representatives to you. And we are in the grace, mercy, and salvation business. And that is when the people of God become a resurrected people of God in, in a clinical sense. But what we look forward to is the day when he returns which will surpass the thing we celebrate on Easter Sunday, trust me. <laughs> You'd think the earth quaked on the day that he came out of the grave. I can't wait to see what happens on the day when he returns and all those who have died in Christ will immediately be resurrected, that is, transformed to the same form as Jesus, the resurrected Lord, and in his presence. And only a blink of an eye later we'll join them if we should be alive in the flesh at that time. This is what we celebrate. Not just Easter Sunday, but every Sunday here at Shiloh. This is what we live for. This is why our personal sort of corporate identity is that we want to be vital to the well-being of the community through our Christian discipleship. And all we're saying is, is, is we want to act like people who are that crazy about Jesus and that filled with the Holy Spirit and that we want this church to be a place where people can't live without that part that we play in the community life. And of course, that means that our goal then every day is to be disciples of Jesus Christ more devoted to him today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow, and to seek disciples who would join in that journey with us. And then we might just see the world around us change because of it. Amen? Amen. Amen.